All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Good morning, everybody. We have handouts this morning. If you didn't get one, I apologize. We just ran out of them, but I think I think Susan nailed it because I think we got one for basically everybody. Noah, did I get one for you? You got one. Okay. Okay. Well, praise the Lord. Perfect. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, for the opportunity to be able to be together and approach your word. Lord, I pray that you would please teach us through this text this morning how to live as the household of God, as beloved children. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the passage we're going to look at today is kind of a long one. Um, I feel like after looking at this that I've bitten off more than I can chew, really. Uh, but I'll give you a little background of why it's such a, a long passage, and that is I get to preach once a month at the rescue mission. And so I kind of pattern the sections that I take off of the fact that it's only once a month. I'm not preaching once a week. And so if it were taking smaller sections, I feel we would just, it would take years and years to go through a single book of the Bible. And so I, I tend to go a little bit faster. However, after uh, approaching this passage, I think I'm going to slow down a little bit. A um, couple things about the handout that I gave you. Uh, this passage has a lot of imperatives. It has a lot of commands. And so I've highlighted the commands. So all of the imperatives have a highlight on them. It was yellow in the original. It's gray on the sheets in front of us this morning. Second, one of the things that I've found to be helpful in sharing messages is having a little bit of input from those who are receiving the message and so or involvement. And uh, I have fill in the blanks. Now, that might if that seems uh, uh, belittling at all, I, that isn't the intention at all. It's, it's to ha just help engage. Uh, I found that to be helpful um, when I share the gospel and when I share the word down at the rescue mission. So we're looking at, as I alluded to in my prayer, we're looking at rules for the household of God, living in the household of God. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the text. The first passage we're looking at is just the first couple of verses. And we're going to look at how we're living and to live as loved children. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Another thing that I should point out is I've bolded, I've bolded passages or words that speak to the reality of of our new relationship with God as children, as loved, as beloved, as children of light, you're going to see a little bit later. I've also underlined some passages or words that speak of the opposite of those who are not children of God or behavior um, that is contrary to that. So the first thing who is this written to? This is written to beloved children of God, loved by Christ. And we're directed to imitate, that's that first fill in the blank, we're directed to imitate God and walk in 
love that we've experienced from God. I want to just relate a brief experience to you. Uh, when I was in the life recovery program at the rescue mission, my counselor, Josh Darnell, who is our, our teacher for this class and who actually ended up marrying Leo and I in a very interesting experience, um, he drew an illustration on the whiteboard, and I believe it was our first class together. And I'm pretty foggy as to the outer circle. He kind of put an outer circle, and there were different aspects of obedience in the Christian life, like reading the word or just generally living a righteous life, prayer, I'm sure. But one thing that really stood out to me is on the inside of that, at the very center of the illustration, he drew the love of God, drew the love of God. And his point was that the love of God is the engine that propels obedience. The love of God is the engine that propels obedience. The passage we're looking at today has many commands for our obedience, as I've mentioned. So it's helpful to see the context. We're coming into the fifth chapter. There's four chapters that precede this. In particular, in the first three chapters, Paul has spoken about the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. And then in the second three chapters, he speaks about how to live out of those realities in the Christian life. So let's take a look at a few passages and I would love help in doing so. So if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, well, I'll give you a, a second to do that. And we're going to look at a couple of these passages so that we can see the love that God has for us in Christ. And actually, let me get, let me get five readers. Let me get five readers. Who wants to take Ephesians 1, 3 through 5? All right, Seth. Ephesians 1 through 5. Ephesians 1, 7 through 9. All right, Ben. Noah, you can take Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Let's do that. All right, James. And then finally, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right, so let's start with Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Amen. In prehistory, you know, it's a prehistory before the foundation of the world, God chose us. Just let that sink in for a second. In prehistory, God chose us. If you are believing in Jesus Christ today, God chose you before the foundation of the world. In prehistory, he chose us and predestined us to be adopted into his family. All right, Ephesians 1, 7 through 9. Amen. In past history, so the first one we're looking at prehistory. In past history, Christ came and paid the price for our sins according to God's eternal plan of redemption, which in his kindness 
He's revealed to us. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. So we looked at prehistory, choosing, being already predestined to be adopted. And then Christ in past history came and paid the price for our sins. So Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Go ahead, Noah. Amen. So in our history, so we looked at prehistory, past history. Now in our history, we were privileged to hear the gospel and believe it. At which point God marked us as belonging to him by the Holy Spirit. All right, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. So even though we were spiritually dead in disobedience to God and deserving of wrath, because not of our goodness, not because of anything he saw in us, but because of his great love and mercy, he brought us to life with Christ. And I love verse 7. It says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, so that he can show kindness to us forever. So that he can show kindness to us forever. That's the love of God that we see there. All right, finally, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Go ahead, Laura. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So after all of that, and we skipped over, obviously, a lot in the first couple of chapters, first three chapters, but at the very end of it, Paul sums it up with a prayer. And that prayer is that we would know how great the love of God is, how great, how wide, long, high, deep, that we'd have strength to comprehend how great the love of God is. So let me pray again for us, just this this short prayer, because I think that we need it. Lord, strengthen our spiritually weak hearts to know and believe the love you have for us in Christ. And help us to believe that you are powerful in us to give us strength to obey, even obey joyfully. Amen.
that's the end of that prayer. He says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think, right? all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. So as he launches into these second three chapters, which focus largely on obedience, on walking out the love of God in community, we always go back and look at the fact that we can't keep the commands of God in our own strength. We look to God's strength to be able to keep the commands of God. We also don't keep the commands of God except uh, and primarily out of love for him and because we've experienced the love of God. We love because he first loved us. All right, so now uh, I'd love to, to put this question out to you, and I'd, uh, this is a question for meditation and for thinking on, but also I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, what helps you to enjoy the love of God? What helps you to enjoy the love of God? Is there something that helps you to experience, to think about, to meditate on, to enjoy the love of God in your Christian walk? Joe, Joe lifted up his Bible, reading the word. Yeah. Any, anyone have anything specific? Maybe a specific passage or a specific way you approach? Because I know sometimes it's easy to just kind of read over the word and kind of miss the, the deep truths that are there. Miss the forest of the trees, if you will. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. You said ask. Ask the Lord to help you to see and savor. Yeah. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Yeah. Amen. Any other thoughts? I think experiencing the love of God through interactions with other believers mm-hmm. is one way of, of having a more tangible, I guess, experience of God's love. Yeah. Experiencing the love of God through others, yeah. Asher. Reciting verses, okay. Yeah. The idea of meditating, kind of even speaking to yourself or speaking to others, the word. Any other thoughts? All right, well, we'll go ahead and move on. So just I would ask you to remember that as we're going through this, that we keep the commands of God out of love for him who first loved us and out of the strength that he's provided. So as we approach these commands, keep that in the back of your mind. So a warning against participation in sin. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. As children of God, there are behaviors that are out of place, that are not fitting, that are out of line with the behavior that's to take place in our household. In chapter 4, Paul already dealt with lying, anger, stealing, corrupting talk, and unforgiveness, bitterness, wrath. Here he now addresses, I believe, two things in particular. I know that it looks like it was six things, but I believe that the two main things here 
are sexual sin and covetousness. And especially sexual sin, and I think most of what he's talking about here focuses in and around sexual sin. So sexual sin, sexual immorality and impurity, as he calls it, examples of which being pornography, sex outside of marriage and homosexuality, and covetousness being having a desire that's excessive or out of line uh, for either things or for people. And so that's where it can kind of come back around on the sexual immorality. because You can have a desire uh, for someone or something that really is, it ends up leading to sexual immorality. So he says the household of God shouldn't have a name for sexual sin. Unfortunately, uh, there are many cases in which, especially in recent days where we've seen that the, ha- the household of God, or at least the, the church and certain denominations, have had a name for sexual sin, which is very unfortunate. And he cautions us, I believe, in our discussion about it. He talks about filthiness, foolish talking, crude joking. I believe that those things, because the fact that they're sandwiched in between, he says, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Then he says, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. But then he immediately returns back to sexual, the sexually immoral one, impure one, or covetous one. So I believe that we could think about, especially, these are ways that we shouldn't be talking about sin, in particular sexual immorality. You know, our culture is debauched in, in terms of the way that it talks about and thinks about sex. And so we should not fall into the error of speaking lightly or foolishly uh, or making jokes, crude jokes about sin, in particular about sexual immorality. And he says, in, in contrast, thanksgiving. Now, this isn't thanksgiving for the sin that he's talking about, but there's an aspect that thanksgiving helps to combat bad heart attitudes. So it's thanksgiving towards God, and that helps to combat bad and foul speech and bad heart attitudes. So then covetousness is called idolatry here. As what covetousness does is it's this constant desire for more. And it places things besides God above him in our hearts. We're called to find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in God. And to be content with what he gives us. And I'll tell you, I've benefited a lot from John Piper in this regard. You know, his... His watchword is joy, finding joy and satisfaction in God. Um, And I've actually, I'll say I've benefited a lot from his look at the book uh, videos. I don't know if you've seen those. If you haven't, they're tremendously helpful. He takes a particular short passage, puts it up on the screen. So you're not looking at him, you're looking at the, the passage and he dissects it and helps you to learn how to study the Bible. So I found those passages or those videos to be tremendously helpful. So I'll plug them here. So as Tyler has been sharing in the Sunday school classes on church discipline, there are certain sins that when practiced in a habitual and unrepentant way undermine one's profession of faith. They make it so that someone looking in can't affirm that you're a Christian. I think that one of the things... uh, Sorry, I think that that's a main point in kind of what he's talking about here. Uh, So if you're a child of God, you've been regenerated. So regeneration and faith in Christ go together. That is to say, 
no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born again to a new nature. The new nature is evidence of faith, of salvation. And I would say the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament is that as a result of regeneration of the Holy Spirit, you won't live in a habitual, unrepentant state of sin. And those who do show evidence that they likely have not been converted. So I believe that's what Paul is talking about here. He says there's no uh, sexually immoral or impure or covetous person and an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God. Let no one deceive you. He's saying that there are certain behaviors that when people are indulging in, it shows that they have not been changed by the Holy Spirit. And not to let anyone deceive, but that those things inhibit somebody from inheriting the kingdom of God. They are not on the path for heaven, but to the contrary, God's wrath is coming upon them. So it's a sobering and a serious warning. But I think that that warning also helps us to avoid that, those sins. When you look at the book of Hebrews, it's full of warnings. It's full of warnings, but the purpose of those warnings, just like you warn your children, uh, is not because they're not your children. It's because you want that to protect them from straying into these things. So I think that that's why Paul is giving this warning to the church. So this is a question for application, just to consider on your own. Uh, how do you talk about sin with others? Do you fall into making light of it or telling unwise jokes? Just something to think about as you reflect on this passage later. So living as light to expose and overcome sin. So coming out of that, he says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What then should be our attitude towards sin and those living in patterns of sin? Many of us have a background of life in sin. How are we to act toward those who are still living in it? Some of us have friends who are still living in a pattern of sin or family members. So what's our attitude and our, our kind of acting towards them? So first, coming out of this, he says, therefore, just in light of the wrath that we've just heard, knowing that wrath that such sin invites, we don't partner with them in their sin. Because that's not who we are anymore. It says we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. So there's that, we're that knowing the love of God and the new nature and the new identity, power, the obedience. We are children of light. And so we live as light around them. I believe that functions in two ways. We shine through examples of a pattern of what is good, right, and true, doing what is pleasing to God, and also through word. We carefully aim to expose the sin for the purpose of turning them to the light. This happens through our lifestyle, which has a tendency to expose sin through contrast. 
can't tell you how many times I've walked into uh, the day room or a situation at the rescue mission where people are using very filthy language and all of a sudden they apologize to me for the filthy language that they're using. You know, I didn't say anything to them, but they've just seen the way that I live. They know that I'm a Christian. They know that I'm preaching the gospel and they feel convicted just because of that and, and using that. And I'll try and tell them, hey, ultimately, you don't need to be sorry to me. You need to be sorry to God. It's him. He's the one that you need to be concerned about, not me. Um, but I do appreciate their desire to kind of clean things up, at least if it's a little misguided. So the word expose here in this passage, it says uh, don't partake, but expose. It's often translated as reprove or rebuke. So I think that included in the lifestyle aspect of it is also speaking. It's also speaking. It's as we have opportunity, wisely considering and thinking about how we can speak to somebody, warning them, uh, showing care and concern. You know, you think about Paul. It says that he reasoned with people about sin and righteousness and judgment. He did that with a pagan ruler, somebody who wasn't a believer. And so I don't think it's wrong to talk to people who aren't believers about sin and about the danger of their sin. And I love the way that he, he lays that out here, what he says. He says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we can speak to them about the light of Christ. Speak to them about the light of Christ that can shine on them and bring them to life from their spiritual death, even pleading with them to awaken from their sin. So the question, again, for application, meditation on later, how do the people around you, especially those who are not believers, experience the light of your life? How do the people around you experience the light of your life? And in this, maybe there's some things that you've seen in others in the way that they live, that they're white, that you would want to imitate. Finally, let's look at this last section, living a wise, spirit-filled life. Let's just see how I'm doing on time. I'm doing pretty well. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we have this opportunity. We have time. We have time. And one of the main things he's getting into here is walking wisely. He says that in a few different ways. He says, not as unwise, but as wise. Uh, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And then he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirits. There's kind of four pairs there. I've been thinking some about how to use time. And in particular, I think the word that he uses for time here in the Greek, to my understanding, doesn't just refer to time generally, but it has the idea of opportunities. It's the idea of opportunities, that there are opportunities in day-to-day -day life that come at us. 
So there's two aspects, I think, to making the best use of, or another way of thinking about it would be buying up the time. Buying up the time, purchasing opportunities. First is planning. Now, this is something that Stephen really got me into a few years ago, you know, when he was getting into the getting things done uh, system of productivity and beginning to use a, a good task manager and everything. Maybe some of you all geek out on productivity like I do. And so I think there's an element of that, is that we shouldn't just coast through life just reacting to what comes at us. There should be an element of planning. He says, look carefully. Look out at what opportunities there are in your life. Look at who is in your life. You know, maybe there's opportunities in this season of life with your family. Maybe children are at a certain age where there's particular opportunities to invest, to do good opportunities among the church body to do good, to love, opportunities among co-workers, family, friends, uh, outside of your household, to love, to do good, to serve, to share the gospel, to build gospel-oriented relationships with people. That doesn't, generally speaking, just come. It's something that you have to put thought and time and effort into. And it's over time. It, a lot of these things take time. You know, we've got, by the grace of God, a fairly good relationship with our neighbors, but it's just taken something as simple as, you know, handing out, and I talked about this last year. It's kind of funny that I'm basically doing a message at the same time. It's just not explicitly on evangelism this time. But of course, I'm going to fall into evangelism because that's who I am. Um, you know, it's been through handing out um, Christmas letters. It's been through inviting neighbors over. We've uh, fortunately, my friend John Reisner, very early on when we moved into our new neighborhood, got me in the vein of, of thinking about gatherings at our house. And so we've had an, a few gatherings at our house from right after we moved in. And that's just enabled, it's, it's enabled some, some room to start building relationships with our neighbors. But it's taken time, and now I have a lot of their numbers, and so I can text them to see how things are going. Just a little bit. It's, it's, it's little things over time. Um, and I don't say that in any way to try and say that I'm the perfect example of this. I'm certainly not, but, um, you know, by the grace of God, he allows these opportunities. So that, that's the one part is seeing opportunities and taking them or, or planning them out, thinking, having a time even in your week where you reflect and you, you ask the question, what, what opportunities are there? You know, where is there maybe a relationship that I should seek to invest in more? Um, or may, maybe where is there somebody that I could start to approach? Something as simple as inviting somebody out to have lunch uh, or sitting down with them during lunchtime at work uh, and, and just talking to them, getting to know them. Uh, where might there be an opportunity coming back on the neighbor's thing? It's the holidays. Maybe there's an opportunity for a holiday get-together at your house and you can invite some neighbors. There's just a lot of opportunities, but it requires planning and thought. Um, and the second is seeing the opportunities that come to you seemingly randomly. But we know it's not just randomly. We know it's the providence of God. God is in charge of everything. So, and I'm really, this is the part that I'm really bad at. When that coworker knocks on your door, uh, when you're in the middle of a task, and you're very task-oriented, and so you just want to get done what you're getting done, 
realizing that this might be an opportunity um, to invest in them because rarely does is there rarely is there some like halo that comes around or or a light bulb that pops up that God tells you, hey, I'm about to give you an opportunity with somebody. Pay attention. You know, he gives us opportunities. And and this is him saying he sends opportunities. Pay attention. So it's passages like this that remind us to be on the lookout, to be on the lookout, that when that person stops by and it seems just like a frustrating interruption in your day, see it as an opportunity. See it as an opportunity for serving somebody, for loving somebody. And I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to anybody in here, because that's something that I struggle with greatly. I am so task-oriented that I just want to keep, keep working on what I'm working on. So we have those opportunities. So let's try to recognize the opportunities that God has given us. I also want to talk a bit about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. What it means to be filled with the Spirit. So he says to be filled with the Spirit, and then he talks about a handful of things. He gives some some participles, some some things that uh, are associated with being filled with the Spirit. And they are addressing, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything, and finally submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You might ask, what's the relationship between being filled with the Spirit and these five actions, participles? Is, is that how we're filled with the Spirit? We do these five things, and, and that will cause us to be filled with the Spirit. But I think it's the other way around. I think these are the evidence of being filled with the Spirit. If we are filled with the Spirit, then these will result. These will result. Which would ask the question, uh, how are we filled with the Spirit? Well, in a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, it says essentially to be filled with the Word. It says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then it says very similar things. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So I think that a lot of it has to do with uh, letting the word of Christ dwell in us, meditating on it, thinking on it. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So it's being filled with that. Because it's in contrast to being drunk, right? When you're drunk, you're under the influence of alcohol, as opposed to being filled with spirit, which seems to be being influenced under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit inspired the Word. And so it seems to make sense that being influenced by the Spirit would be to be influenced by the Word. And the other aspect of that is prayer. You know, Paul prays in chapter 1. He prays that they would be filled. Let's see. Praise that they would have the eyes, or sorry, verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. He's asking them that that God would give them the spirit. Well, he's writing to believers. They already have the spirit, but he's apparently asking for a greater portion of the spirit. Similarly, as we read in chapter 3, 
In verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So he's not speaking to those who don't have the spirit and asking that they would be given the spirit. He's not speaking to those who don't have Christ dwelling in them, that they would have Christ dwelling in them. He's speaking to those who already have the spirit and already have Christ dwelling in them, that they may have a greater fullness and experience of Christ dwelling in them. So all that to say, believe the way to be filled with the spirit is in particular prayer and the word, which kind of gets back to exactly what Joe mentioned earlier, prayer and the word. And then the result of that will be this lifestyle of singing, giving thanks, address, even addressing one another. So singing even to one another and to God and giving thanks. And then also this humility of relationships. And that gets right, that submitting to one another flows right into the next passage where it's going to talk about relationships of submission. Wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. Um, children submit or obey your parents. Uh, parents love your children. And then finally, bond servants obey or submit to your masters and masters treat your servants well. So I think that those, those relationships of submission are particularly that. But then there's also, I believe, a sense of just humility and loving service of one to another. And that service comes especially out of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So in closing, a final question for application, something to think about. What would it look like for you to make the best use of your time and the opportunities that come your way to influence others? Thinking about those two in particular that I mentioned, the planning aspect of it or the responding better to the seemingly frustrating or maybe not seemingly actually frustrating uh, situations that come your way. Maybe you're, you need to choose one of those and think about one way that you could grow in that. Um, think about, you know, how can I pray that the Lord would give me a softer heart so that when people interrupt me, I won't respond negatively or think about, Lord, help me and help us as a family to come together to, to plan how to be able to, to love and serve the people who are in our lives better. And remember, again, that these all fall under the auspices of us being beloved children living in his household. Um, let's see how we're doing with time. Any questions? Any questions or thoughts, comments? All right, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you that we live in this household of God. Lord, that you've placed us by your love and your sovereignty into a household, into relationships that will never end, that we are going to uh, be able to live with one another uh, forever um, in the heavenly kingdom. You've transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. So, Lord, we pray, show us what you want to stick out to us from this passage. Help us to apply these things to our lives, whether it's 
making better use of time, whether it's talking differently about sin, uh, and particularly help us to enjoy your love. Lord, we pray that you would please be with um, be with us in the coming time of worship. Uh, Lord, unfortunately, I won't be able to be here. Um, I pray that you'd be with me as I speak at the rescue mission. Um, and Lord, just that you would guide us and lead us according to your way. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.